happening, sorry, are from Exodus 19 and 20, as well as Romans 3. The theme of today's service is God's promise of belonging, shown to us in the covenant he made with Israel through Moses. So please listen for how that theme is reflected in our scripture readings. Exodus 19, verse 1. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above or on the earth, beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall bear labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Romans 3 verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, though, rather through the law, we become conscious of our sin. 
But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by, Jesus, by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. As we light the third candle of Advent, we look back on the coming of Jesus and we rejoice. He came and revealed to us a righteousness that we could not achieve for ourselves. He gave that righteousness to us as we put our faith in him so that we now belong to God. We also look forward to when he comes again and we will see the glory of God. In anticipation of that day, we seek to honor him by living righteous lives. <clears throat> well, we talked about earlier how we're looking for youth leaders. Uh, I've been helping out with youth groups since the summer, and I, I was youth pastor here eight years ago or something like that, and I uh, had forgotten how much I loved being part of the youth group. And so I've been helping out again. Uh, and this past Wednesday, at youth group, we played a game that our previous youth pastor, Mark, I think, I'm pretty sure invented. Uh, it's called Pew Pew Tactics. It's basically flag football without the football. Um, there are two teams. There's a red team and a blue team. And everyone wears like a, a belt around their waist that has Velcro flags, either blue flags or red flags on them. And you start on opposite sides of the room and you go and the, basically the object is to steal the other team's flags and not, them, not let them steal your flags and try and be sneaky about how you do that. And if you get your flags stolen, you have to sit down and the last team that still has flags, people with flags, uh, wins. And not to brag, but I was pretty good at this game. Uh, not because I'm faster or more agile than these teenagers, because I am not, but I have at least 80 pounds on all of them. <laughs> and when I charge at them yelling at the top of my voice and my face turns red, they forget to go for my flag and just scatter like a flock of seagulls. And uh, I have a chance to grab their flags, and it went pretty well. I, I enjoyed that a lot, actually, maybe a little too much. Uh, but I think we all had a good time. You know, and I'm not used to being good at games like that. We often start those games by assigning, as you know from your days in school or youth group, assigning two team captains and making those captains pick teams, right? We did the same thing back in my day, and I've said from the pulpit many times that I was often, uh, usually, always the last one picked. But every once in a while, something strange would happen. And the natural order of the world would get turned on its head. And my friend would be picked as a team captain. Now that in and of itself doesn't guarantee anything. But on those rare days of everything being backwards, that friend would choose loyalty over wanting to win. And I'd get picked first. Now, you might think this would be great for me. That I'd be excited to be finally picked first. But in some ways, it's actually worse than getting picked last because you know that the other team captain didn't waste their picks on friendship and now they have more good people than they usually would have on their team and my team just has me. And now there's this there's pressure on me to be something that I'm not, to live up to the hope and the expectation that was put on me 
by being picked. And I just can't do it. I couldn't do it. I knew I wasn't going to lose my spot on the team, but I can't be what I was called to be. And that was not a good feeling. (laughs) Do you ever get overwhelmed in life with a sense of inadequacy in, in other areas more important than games that you play? Maybe at work or at school or as a parent or as a Christian. Many of us, if not all of us, go through life dealing with a sense of inadequacy often, feeling like a fraud who's just pretending to know what we're doing, hoping a real adult will come along. It's it's especially true, though, I think, in our, our relationship with God. You and I, we know what a Christian's supposed to be like. And we know that we're not that. Maybe not all of you deal with that, but I'm sure many of us do. We know what we're like in our hearts. And we're sure that God just must be mad at us all the time. We're certainly, we certainly don't want anyone else knowing how we're really doing and how we're struggling with sin. Because we just know they would never look at us the same again, right? Well, if you've ever felt that way, and again, I think most of us, if not all of us, have then Christmas has a really important message for you. A message that you and I need to understand together today. Now this is our third week in our Advent series on God's covenant in the Bible, right? This, this year as we anticipate Christ or Christmas and remember when Jesus came, we're, we're digging into the Bible to learn uh, about a, a series of sacred promises that God made. These promises are called the covenants and they form the plot line of the Bible. They point us to the climax of the story of the Bible, which is Jesus, which is Christmas. So far, we've looked at two of these covenants. Two two weeks ago, we looked at the covenant with Noah, where God made, actually with the world through Noah, and he, he promised in that covenant to be patient with us. Even though our sins deserve to be punished, he would put off that punishment and be patient. Last week, we looked at the second covenant, the covenant that God made with Abraham, Promising not just to be patient with our sin, but to actually go the opposite direction from punishment and bless the world. Bless the world through Abraham and his family. Today, as we look at the third covenant in the Bible, we're about 400 years later than Abraham's life. We're going to look at the covenant that God made with Moses, or actually, more accurately, the covenant that God made through Moses but is actually with Abraham's descendants, the whole nation of Israel. We're going to see how this covenant that God made through Moses points forward to Jesus. And how because Jesus came at Christmas, we have everything we need so we can belong to God. That's our big idea today. Because Jesus came at Christmas, we have everything that we need so that we can belong to God. I hope our time in God's Word together this morning will give you a new sense of hope and joy and assurance in your relationship with God. That God's not shaking his head saying, oh, I shouldn't have picked him or her. Because of Christ, because he came at Christmas, we have everything we need so that we can belong to him. In this passage, in these passages that we're looking at today, there's going to be three main points that we talk about. And the first one is this. You belong to God, if you do, if you're a Christian, you belong to God because of what he did, not because of what you do. 
It's not because you're good enough or you're smart enough or you're wise enough. It's because of what God did. You belong to God because of what he did, not because of what you do. Last week, when we looked at the covenant that God made with Abraham. Uh, we saw in there in chapter 15 that God told Abraham what was going to happen to his descendants. He kind of walked him through the next 400 years of the history of his family, or the future of his family, I guess. And he said that during that 400 years, they would be moving to Egypt, and then they would get enslaved by the Egyptians and mistreated by them, but that God would punish the Egyptians who had mistreated them and eventually rescue them from slavery. So our passage in Exodus chapter 19 picks up just after God did that. It's been three months, they've been out of, the, out, of, uh, um, out of Egypt, and we read in Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. So the newly freed Israelites, this great nation that are the descendants of Abraham, they're camped at the foot of Mount Sinai on the Sinai Peninsula between Africa and Asia, right? You can maybe picture the map in your head. And while they're there, God descends on the top of the mountain in a cloud, and he calls Moses up to speak with him. And he gives Moses a message to take back to the people of Israel. Exodus 19 verse 3 says, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession." Although the whole world, or the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Now God tells the people of Israel through Moses that he will make a covenant with them. And this covenant isn't just a promise that God makes to them. We've seen that in the past with, with Mo, Moses and, or sorry, Abraham and Noah, that God makes a promise. But in this uh, uh, instance, God makes a promise, but there's also things that are required back from the Israelites. They, there's a, a terms that they have to fulfill in the promise as well. Verse 5 says, Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. They need to, end up to, their, they need to live up to their end of this. Now, hopefully you, you're thinking enough about this that, you, that you're starting to wonder, wait, didn't you just say that this point is that if we belong to God, it's because of what he did, not because of what we do. That doesn't seem to fit with this. Yes, I did say that. And the reason that I said that is because that verse that I just read, verse 5, comes after verse 4. Exodus 19, verse 4 says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So God starts this covenant with, You know what I have done for you. You saw how I rescued you, how my salvation was at work for you. You saw the plagues that I sent to punish Egypt. You saw how I protected you during those plagues, how I provided the Passover to spare you from death when I sent the angel of death through the land, how I led you from there 
with a pillar of fire and smoke that protected you along the way, how I parted the Red Sea and allowed you to cross safely on dry land, but then sent that same sea crashing down on Pharaoh's army when they tried to pursue you. But notice the last phrase that God says in verse 4. He doesn't just rescue them from something. He brought them to something. He says, I brought you to myself. God saved Israel so they could be his. Later on in Deuteronomy, a few, cha- a few books later, God says to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7 that he didn't save them because they were a great or numerous nation. They weren't, they weren't so great. They weren't so important. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, he says it's not because they were righteous. And by the way, that word righteous, there's a spot in your notes for this, that word righteous is going to come up a lot. You need to understand what it means. The word righteous means to be morally upright or innocent of sin. If you're righteous, you're innocent of sin. So remember that. Israel was not righteous. In fact, they were stubbornly sinful, terribly guilty of sin. So if that's the case, if Israel wasn't the greatest or most important or most numerous nation, if they weren't the most righteous nation, they weren't innocent of sin but were so sinful, why did God save them? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 8 tells us. He says, it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. Because of this, he brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He says, I brought you out of Egypt because I loved you. Because I made a promise that I would do this. Israel belonged to God because God loved them, because he chose them, because he was keeping his promise to Abraham. Listen, it had nothing to do with who they were or what they had done. God did make demands for obedience out of them. You need to understand that and know that. But it only happened after he saved them and brought them to himself. After he picked them for his team, even though they weren't qualified. Now, as we look at this, we're not the the nation of Israel. That's an important point to make. The covenant that God is making right here in Exodus through Moses isn't for us. It is for the nation of Israel at that time. And so there are some parts of this covenant that just don't directly apply to us, though they still teach us some very important things. And that's a sermon series for another time. I actually hope to go through Leviticus in the new year at some point with you guys. But God has always been the same God. And he's always operated in the same way. And because the God who chose Israel to be his is the same God that chooses people to be his today, you can know that if you belong to God, it's because God chose you. It's not because of what you did, it's because of what he did. Because he chose you and he saved you. That leaves us with a question, though. right? If God chooses us to belong to him, but not because of what we do, but because of what he's done, then why do we need to obey God? Why is there this whole section about obeying God? Right? This is the beginning of the next chapter, the Ten Commandments, and there's a lot of rules in the, the next few books of the Bible. Why is that there? Well, that leads us to our next point. The first one, again, was you belong to God because of what he did, not because of what you do. The second point is this. You belong to God in order, in order to show the world what he's like, right? He saved you to himself in order for you to do something, to show the world what he's like. Look again at this passage in Exodus 19, starting in verse 4. 
You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole, whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. Now, I know that it sounds like God is saying here that Israel has to obey him fully in order to belong to him, right? If you obey me fully, then, then you will be to me a, a treasured possession. But that's not the point. They need to obey him fully because belonging to God isn't just a privilege, it's also a responsibility. God has chosen Israel for himself. He's saved them to himself and brought them to himself because he loves them. Because they are his treasured possession. But in order to live that role out, they have to obey him. Now, when I got married to Becky, uh, I, she was finishing university, and I was already working here. And so she used to joke that she was marrying me for my job and my money and my house and my car. And it wasn't true, and if it was, she could have done a lot better for herself. Uh, she didn't marry me for what I had. She married me because she loves me, I'm thankful to say. But once we got married, I do share what I have with her. My money is hers. My car is hers. My home is hers. Otherwise, I'm not really being a husband, right? I'm not being one with her. And so God says, you are my treasured possession. Now you need to live that out by obeying me. Why? Well, God continues. You need to show the whole world what it looks like to belong to me. The whole world is mine because I'm the God who created it, but you, you were chosen by me to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, right? That's what he says in those verses. For the whole world is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, now what does that mean? That's the responsibility of belonging to God. A priest, here's another definition for you that you need to know, is a mediator between God and the people. He goes between, stands between God and the people so that the people can come to God. He's someone who lives an especially holy life. He's separate from the regular things of life so that he can stand between God and the people and bridge the gap so that the people can come to God through him. Now Israel, as we go along in the, the story, as you know, would have priests that were selected out of the nation of Israel to stand between them and God. They were people that had to be extra holy and follow extra rules and, and, and abstain from extra things so that they could be special and bridge the gap between the Israelites and God. But each and every one of the Israelites also had that role for the rest of the world. They were to live holy lives. They were to be different from the nations around them. Right? The rest of the covenant with Moses spells out exactly how they were to do that. You can re read that in the rest of Exodus and in Leviticus, and then Numbers explains it a bit more, and Deuteronomy repeats it. The laws are about being morally righteous, but they're also about being just different than the nations. There are some laws in there that we look at and we wonder, why are they there? They are there to show that Israel and God are different from the nations around them. Keeping away from certain kinds of foods and going through certain rituals to be ceremonially clean after being exposed to just the normal cycles of birth and death. He says, this will show the world how different I am. And God says, I want you to be different, so you need to obey my commands so you can show the nations around you that I'm holy. Right, that I'm righteous, that I'm morally upright, that I'm different from you mortal humans, that I'm powerful and mighty and eternal. This is your responsibility as my treasured possession. Now, once again, this was God's intention for the nation of Israel, which we are not. 
But once again, this truth also applies to us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, Peter, when he writes this letter, he quotes this passage from Exodus 19, verse 6. And he quotes it to Christians. He tells us that this is our role, too. That the way we live matters. He goes on in 1 Peter 2.11 to say, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, right? That is language that is very common for Israel, not living in the land that they wanted to live in, but it's also true for Christians living in a world that's not going to go along with what we know is true. I urge you as foreigners and exiles who don't belong here, your job, he says, is to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, the unbelievers who don't love God, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We're told in scripture that we as Christians represent God to the world. They see our lives and based on that they judge what God is like. And our responsibility as those who belong to God, who are his treasured possession is to love such good lives that they can't deny that God is good and has done something incredible in us. Now many will deny that anyway, even if they do see that evidence. But God will use our obedience in the lives of some to draw them to himself. Now the question that should be screaming in your head at this point is, how in the world do we do that? Let's be honest, that is a ridiculously tall order, a big ask out of us. How do we show the world what God is like? How can we possibly be that good? Which brings us to our third point. Right? We've seen that you belong to God, not because of what you've done, but because of what he has done. And that you belong to God in order to show the world what he's like. Our third point is you belong to God because of the righteousness of Jesus. Now this is sort of a cop-out of a point. It really is just a restatement of the first point. But it also expands on it, explains it a bit more. You belong to God because of the righteousness of Jesus. As we continue our passage, this truth comes out more clearly. Right, we've seen that one of the reasons that we need to obey God is because we have this responsibility to show the world what he's like, but this passage gives us an even more basic reason why, we, by, why being God's treasured possessions means we need to obey him. And that's just because we can't be in God's presence otherwise. Sinful, disobedient people can't be in God's presence. Exodus chapter 19, verse 16, gives us a description of what it was like when God came and descended on the mountain and what happens. He's coming so that he can initiate this covenant with his people. The people have agreed to it. They're looking forward to it. And then we read in Exodus 19, verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and very loud, a very loud trumpet blast. And everyone in the camp trembled. Now, we need to think about this for a moment. This is a scary scene. People are trembling. Why is this so scary? This is the same God that used to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. Why is this experience of his presence so different from that one? Well, the reason is because sin has broken the relationship between humans and God. That God is 
holy and completely without sin. He really is righteous and innocent from sin in every way. And he's glorious and good. And so we as sinful humans can't enter into his presence because his perfect purity and glory is too much for us. Being in God's presence as sinful human beings is now terribly frightening. It's even dangerous. Right? And we see that in the story of Adam and Eve. They used to walk with God in the garden, but after they sin, when God comes, they hide because they're afraid. They can't enjoy his presence anymore. And this isn't just an Old Testament thing either, right? Do you remember what Peter said to Jesus when they first met? The story, Peter's been out all night fishing and caught nothing, and he's tired and discouraged, and he comes in, and this man that he's never met before, Jesus says, I want you to try casting your net on the other side of your boat, which is ridiculous, right? The same fish are in the water no matter what side of the boat you put your net in. Peter's tired and grumpy, but for some reason, he doesn't. And the nets are immediately so full that they start breaking. It's an act of divine intervention. Jesus, as God, made all the fish in the lake swim into the net all of a sudden. And then we read in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, that when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Being in in the presence of God is terrifying for sinners. And we are all sinners. Now that's the main tension in God's covenant with Moses. How can a sinful people belong to and live with the holy God? But last week we saw that Abraham had intimate conversations with God. and was even bold in his presence asking for things. And Noah seemed to do okay too. And Peter was close with Jesus. And there are so many more people in the Bible who have a relationship with God. Why were they able to do that? Now, we may be tempted to say that it's because they were righteous, that they, they obeyed God, that they were innocent of sin. They were morally upright and good people. After all, the next chapter in Exodus is the Ten Commandments, right? Exodus 20, we have these familiar passages of the Ten Commandments. So maybe we're going to say people who follow these kinds of rules are good in God's books, aren't they? That's what the people of Israel began to think, right? The history of them is is pretty sad. They struggled to obey God for generations and generations, and God had to punish them for their sin over and over again. He gave them chances, and he gave them grace, and they just kept falling into sin. But at some point, they said, we really need to take this law seriously. We need to really start obeying God. And, And they developed a whole system of teaching and keeping God's commandments. The best Keepers of the law were a group of religious leaders called the Pharisees, right? If you've ever read the Gospels, you know that Jesus didn't think too highly of the Pharisees and their law keeping. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the the law, you will certainly never, or certainly not, enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees were the best ever at following God's rules, following the law. But they weren't good enough. Jesus says, listen, if you want to know God, you've got to be better than them. You've got to be more righteous than they are. You've got to be more innocent of sin than they are. But what, what does he mean by that? They had kept every letter of the law, every little piece of it. Well, in Matthew chapter 5, he, Jesus goes on to say in verse 21, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. 
and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now, if you had to pick one of the Ten Commandments that you thought you'd have the easiest time following today, it'd probably be number six, you shall not murder, right? You go to bed at the end of the day and say, I didn't kill anyone today, gold star, good job, right? Not so fast. Because Jesus says in Matthew 5, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which is a term of, of uh, derision and, and looking down on somebody, anyone who says that is answerable to the court, and anyone say, who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. But Jesus says, listen, if you're angry with somebody, if you hate them, if you despise them and call them names and think of them as a fool, if you refuse to speak to someone, you give them the silent treatment, treatment acting as if they were dead or didn't exist, then you've murdered them in your heart. Jesus says the righteousness that God requires goes so far beyond just keeping the rules, it drills down into the deepest parts of your heart, into your most secret thoughts and attitudes and motivations and fantasies and desires. So no, no one can keep the Ten Commandments. And find righteousness before God in that way. And I mean, that's just ten of them. There's a whole lot more rules in there. You can't even keep the easiest one. Forget all the rest of them. Christina read for us from Romans chapter 3 earlier. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3. Look at that that passage with me. Romans 3.10. He's quoting from the Old Testament when he says, As it is written, there's no one righteous. There's no one who's innocent of sin. Not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. If you skip down a little bit to verse 20, he says it again in in his own words. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The law cannot make us righteous. We cannot obey it well enough to be good in God's books. The law actually does the opposite of that. That was its intention. It shows us how sinful we are as we try to keep it and fail at a deep heart level. The Pharisees missed that. They thought because they could do it on the outward, in an outward way, that they were good. And they thought they were better than everyone. And so their hearts were just ugly and prideful. And that's why Jesus had so much to say against them. They thought they were deserving of God and his love. But if we can't be righteous by keeping the law, then how how can we be righteous and belong to God? Well, keep reading Romans chapter 3. The next verse Verse 20 says this, we can't do it by the law, but verse 21 says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. There's another way. God's righteousness has been revealed in another way. The law of God and the whole Old Testament, the prophets also, they point to this other way. They were were there to show us our need for them and, and to get us ready for it. So what is this other way? Well, verse 22 says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That phrase, righteousness is given through faith, 
If you were here last week, those words should sound familiar, right? Because we already know how Abraham, sinful as us, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham was given righteousness from God. He had it credited to his account, donated to him. He wasn't righteous on his own. He sinned many times in horrible ways. But because of his faith in God, he was given righteousness. The question that's not answered in the Old Testament is why? Where did that righteousness come from? But even the covenants that God made with Abraham hints at that. We talked about this last week. And Romans 3 tells us explicitly it came from Jesus. Yes, Abraham's sins deserved to be punished. So did Noah's and Moses's and all the people of Israel's and ours and everybody else's. But all the people who lived before Jesus, God did something for them. Listen to what Romans chapter 3 verse 25 says. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, or that word means patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. We saw when we looked at the covenant of Noah that God promised to be patient with sin. I'm not going to judge it right away, right? He does that by not flooding the earth, but he also does it by not punishing the sins of the people who had faith in God. Now, all that sin was still there, and it needed to be dealt with, and God had laid it to the side and said, I will deal with it one day. If I don't, then I'm not a good God. I'm not just. I have to deal with sin. God was able to be patient with that sin because he had a plan. And that plan reaches climax in the coming of Jesus in the first Christmas. God sent his son into the world as a human to live a perfectly righteous life. He was innocent of sin. And then Jesus, though he was righteous, he took that punishment for us by dying on the cross. These verses in, in uh, Romans 3, if you're reading the NIV, say that he was the atoning sacrifice. More literally, the ESV, the English Standard Version, says that he was the propitiation. That's another big word that we need to define because it matters. The word propitiation, some people don't like it because of what it it means. It means that God was angry with our sin, and Jesus took all that anger on himself. People don't like to think about God being angry with our sin, but that's what the Bible says. But Jesus took all of the anger that God had for your sin. All of it. There's none left for you if you put your faith in him. Though he deserved none of the anger of God, because he, in fact, was righteous, he was perfect, he swapped accounts with us. He took our sin and and the debt, and he gave us the immeasurable riches of uh, of his righteousness. And when we put our faith in him, we're not only forgiven for our sins, but we receive his righteousness as a gift. The Bible calls this justification, the last term that you need to, be, to understand today. Justification comes from the same root word in Greek as justice, but also righteousness. If righteousness is being innocent of sin, justification is being declared righteous by God, being declared innocent of sin. 
and morally upright. We're still sinners. We're not righteous, but we're declared innocent by God. Legally speaking, all of our sin is taken care of, and we have Jesus' goodness in us. Taken care of. It's because of that gift of righteousness, that, uh, the righteousness of Jesus, that we can belong to God. Right? That gift is for you if you will have faith. I, I just want to invite you again today, if you do not have faith in Jesus, if you have not been justified, declared innocent by God, because of, not because of your goodness, but because of the goodness of Jesus and what he has done for you, know that God, just like with Israel, wanted to rescue you and bring you to himself. And he did it through the work of Jesus on the cross for you. And if you will put your faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, you can be forgiven and receive the righteousness of Jesus and be declared innocent, be justified before God. And if you have received that gift of faith, you never ever have to worry again that God's angry with you. Brothers and sisters, Christians, there are far too many of us who live in that fear that God is angry at you, but there is nothing left of God's anger for you. Jesus took it all. You haven't let him down. He's not thinking, man, why did I pick him or her for my team? And understand this. You deserve to have God angry at you. But Jesus took it all on the cross, and there's nothing left for you but the delight of your Father. He loves you more than you can possibly imagine, and you have nothing to fear from him. The gift that Jesus gives us doesn't just clear your accounts with God, it also changes you to produce real righteousness in you as well. You start to actually become more like Jesus. You know, the faith that allows us to receive the gift of justification, is a, that faith is a gift in and of itself. We're not even good enough to do that part. God provides that as well. That gift comes from the Holy Spirit of God working in us to open our eyes to even our need for Jesus' righteousness, our need for forgiveness. If the Spirit doesn't do that, we will go through our whole lives trying to be good enough on our own. Whether we define that goodness without God or whether we define it through religious activities like the Pharisees did and like way too many people who call themselves Christians do. But when the Holy Spirit is in us, He opens our eyes to salvation. He changes our hearts so that we be begin to hate our sin and to love Jesus more. When the Holy Spirit changes us to be more like Jesus, these questions that we had about our goodness and how we represent God to the world, we start to get answers to them. We start to see how God's law isn't just about rules that we need to follow, but God's law is actually a reflection of God's character. We see its beauty we want to be like him. And so we listen to the Spirit teaching us through the Bible. And we begin to actually live out the righteousness of Jesus in our lives. And that's when our lives start to begin to live up with God's commandments down to our very motivations and desires. And it's then that we become the kingdom of priests and the holy nation that God desires us to be. People around us are going to see not just our rule-keeping. That's not going to impress anybody. No one cares about that. But our hearts changed by the Holy Spirit to be like Jesus' heart. And through that, God will be glorified in us. People will see us and see the good lives that God has given us and be 
attracted to him. And we'll be able to live up to the calling that he's given us to be this holy nation of priests who show the world what God's like. We'll be able to enjoy our relationship with him because we have righteousness given to us that starts to change us as well. This is the righteousness of God given to us through Jesus. That the law of Moses, the covenant that God made with Moses, points us to. The righteousness that Jesus came to give us on Christmas. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray again for Esther. pray that she's doing okay. But I pray for all of us as well. Lord, all of us have hearts that are deceitful and wicked and, and sinful, and we need, we need your righteousness. We need the righteousness of Christ given to us. And then we need the Holy Spirit. We need you to play out in our lives that righteousness, change us to be more like you. Father, we thank you. For those of us who are Christians here, we thank you for choosing us so we could belong to you. We do not deserve it, but you provide everything we need for it. You provide the faith by which we access that belonging. You provide the righteousness of Jesus, the righteousness that the Holy Spirit puts into us as well, and we start to grow in. We praise you for that. Lord, this Christmas, help us all to understand that better. Lord, if there's any here who don't, who, who've never put their faith in Jesus and been justified because of his propitiating sacrifice, taking the anger for our sins on himself and giving us the blessing, Lord, I pray that they put their faith in you today. We pray for these things. We thank you for them in Christ's name. Amen.